looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35 on the theme of radical discipleship. Jesus says some pretty hard things in this text, maybe a uh, a little bit of a heavy sermon, but I, but I hope that we, uh, the grace of God will be with us as we go through it, just as we get started. Heavenly Father, Father, I just ask for you to be with my mouth. I pray that, uh, that God, I don't want to water down anything that Jesus has said. I, I want the church to hear it with all the force that Jesus says it with, uh, but I don't want to hurt anyone and I don't want to offend anyone, so I just pray that you would be with me, help me. Be with the hearts of the hearers, God. Would we be on the same page? Would our hearts be knit by the Holy Spirit? And uh, would you cause all of us to be edified by the hearing of your word? Would you cause us to be more like Christ, radically like Christ because of it? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who's ever heard of homeopathy? homeopathic medicines. Anybody ever heard of this? Okay, you've heard of that. It's rather controversial. I'd heard the term before, but never really knew what it was until I looked it up uh, recently. But uh, homeopathy or homeopathic medicines are made using a process called homeopathy. And it's basically where you take one part of an active ingredient of medicine and you put it with 100 parts of an inert ingredient. Okay, so if it's going to be a pill, it could be like sugar. Or if it's going to be a liquid, it might be water or something else. All right. And so they dilute the active ingredient into inert ingredient. And then they take one part of that solution and they put it with another hundred parts of dilution and they dilute it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then they do it again. And then there's, so by the, the end result, after all that dilution is that Active ingredient, very often they say, is one part active ingredient to one trillion parts inert ingredient. And they say clinically, it's not, the active ingredient is no longer perceptible in the original. Now, you practice homeopathic medicine, I ain't mad at you. I I don't have, I'm just using this as an illustration. And so not trying to argue one way or the other on this issue. But if what they say is true, if that process results in a dilution where they say clinically uh, homeopathic medicine has no more effect than a placebo, a sugar pill, something that has no. They said it would be the equivalent of taking a pinch of salt and throwing it into Lake Michigan and waiting a couple of years for it to be totally diluted and totally homogeneous and the, the salt would not even be perceptible. So when I was reading this, it was making me think, I think this may be a good illustration of what the problem with the church in America, the Western church. There is some essential quality in Christian discipleship, some active ingredient that Jesus expects to be demonstrated in our lives, but I'm worried that We bring things into it. We bring a desire to be relevant to the culture. We bring a desire to not be offensive to the world. We bring a desire to to for people to like us, and we just add in all these things over and over and over again, and we dilute that essential quality of Christian discipleship. And in the passage we're going to look at, Jesus is going to be very, very clear and very, very explicit about 
that essential quality and what it is that he expects from us in discipleship. So I'm going to give you the big idea to start with, and it's this. The essential quality of Christian discipleship is nothing less than a radical, thoughtful, and calculated commitment to faithfully follow Jesus, even at the cost of our most significant relationships and personal safety. Without it, we will not be useful to Jesus. This is my easy definition of radical discipleship, an uncompromising commitment to love and obey Jesus even when it hurts. And with that, let's read the text. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. There were great crowds following Jesus, huge crowds. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus says that there is an essential quality to Christian discipleship. And if we were going to boil it down, we would say it's this. It's this commitment that's not a rash commitment. It's not a hurried commitment. It's a thoughtful, reflective commitment that comes out of the heart. And the the biblical idea of the heart is not fuzzy love. The biblical idea of the heart is volitional commitment coming out of the center of your will, a commitment to follow Jesus in discipleship. And we're going to talk about what that means I've got four points for you this morning. The first one is that radical discipleship assumes a distinction between fans and followers. And I'm borrowing uh, Kyle Eidelman's language here, a fan and follower. Our church culture in the, in the West, in America, our tendency, we, we say, we may say that we care more about faithfulness than numbers, but the way that we organize church organizations, the way that we organize structures, a lot of times the the way that we structure ourselves indicates that what we really care about is getting a crowded room, right? If we're we're being honest about it, that's just kind of the way church culture in America works. We want a crowd to talk to, and we tend to, in order to get that crowd, we don't want to be too strong, and so it's hard to have family conversations like the one that I'm having with you now where I'm primarily talking to you who are Christians and telling you what this essential ingredient is that we need to recover. But it's hard to have these hard conversations in a place 
where really the only message that we want to let people know is that God loves them and we, and, and we want to invite them into that relationship. And we're fearful, if we're honest, about getting people to think too much about the cost. I have heard preachers say many, many times, oh, you know, don't worry about that. You just come to Jesus and he'll take care of that. Whatever that thing is in your life that makes you think that you can't follow Jesus. We know what Jesus said. Jesus said that thing in your life that makes you think that you can't follow Jesus may actually keep you from following Jesus the way that he expects. Because the kind of people that Jesus is calling to himself are people that the Father is drawing to himself and people whom he will give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those of us who have the gift of the Holy Spirit, he does compel us to obey Jesus. And he does give us incredible power to overcome things that we maybe didn't think we could overcome. He does really does set us free from the power of sin. But we invite people sometimes to come in with thinking that they're experiencing that power when in fact they are not. And they remain bound up in sin. They remain unable to overcome because they have not actually experienced what we claim they've experienced, what we've led them to believe that they've experienced. So I sell that to say that we try to get a crowd. But Jesus makes a distinction between fans and followers. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. So it's interesting that the context here, when Jesus says, makes this hard statement, he's got, he's at the height of his popularity. He's got a crowd of people following him. A crowd of people who are excited about him. A people who are his, people who are his fans. They've seen him healing people. They've seen him exercising demons. They think he's awesome. They're pretty sure that he's the Messiah that the Old Testament promised would come and set Israel free and reestablish Israel as a, as a political entity who would cast off Roman oppressors. They are very excited about Jesus. Okay? And they're cheering. And it seems like they want to move from being in the crowd to being in Jesus' circle of disciples. And when they start making that move, Jesus pushes back. And I believe that you can see this, you can see this throughout the Gospels. It's probably more prominent in the Gospel of Luke than anywhere else. But when people, Jesus had circles, and a lot of people have observed this, but you had the crowds, and to the crowds, Jesus preached open-handedly what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is where you get the invitation to come, be reconciled to God, because the kingdom of heaven it, he, he sets it straight that, that this is what God is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And that God does love sinners. God does love broken people. And God offers reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness of sins through. And Jesus, so Jesus proclaimed this kingdom of God and he proclaimed himself as the mediator of that relationship. Even before the cross, he pointed to himself as the one to whom people had to come if they wanted to have an authentic relationship with God and to receive forgiveness of sin, right? We're agreed on that. And so this is the message that he preaches to the crowd. It's open-handed, free offering. But when the crowd wants to push the line into disciples, consistently in the Gospels, you will find Jesus pushing back and telling them that it, what it's going to cost. And this is the the paradox of salvation is that it is a free gift. The Bible is so emphatic about this. You can't buy salvation from God. You can only receive it as a free gift on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, turning to him as the one mediator between God and man who can bring forgiveness of sin. And yet, the gospel also tells you that those who enter into that relationship, 
those who receive that free gift, it costs them everything. We've preached here before several passages on discipleship. There's one online on Luke chapter 9 if you want to listen more about that. But I I believe this is a consistent theme that you'll see uh, throughout the Gospels that Jesus pushes back and he tells them what the cost is when they're coming to be disciples. And do you know why Jesus was so confident to push back, I believe? I believe that Jesus was so confident because he knew that only the Holy Spirit can save a soul. And so he was not scared to tell people what a commitment to him was going to cost because he was completely confident that if God was drawing them by the Holy Spirit, that they would respond despite the cost, despite how hard it is, they would come. And so we don't have to be afraid in our evangelism. We don't have to be afraid about telling people what it costs to follow Jesus because if the Holy Spirit is drawing them, the calling of the Spirit is totally effectual to accomplish his purpose. He will bring them to Christ. So we don't need to be afraid. We can push back just like Jesus did. And so they're going to move from being in the crowd to being a follower, being a disciple. Here's my definition of a disciple, a learner who seeks to imitate the character and teachings of his or her master. In the context of the first century, rabbis would generally people would come to them to try to be taught by them. And the rabbi, they would rabbi would let them follow them for a while. And then if they didn't cut mustard, he would say, go home. Jesus was a bit unique. He went around and he chose his own disciples and he chose people that probably the disciples he chose were guys who didn't make the cut for rabbinical school. The fact that they were working regular manual labor occupations suggests that they they didn't make it into rabbinical school. So the people Jesus chose to be his disciples would have been very surprised. But when Jesus invited them into that formal relationship of discipleship, they knew exactly what it meant. It did not mean we're going to meet once a week, I'm going to sit and listen, and you're going to pour it into my skull, right? That's not what Jesus meant. They knew it meant I'm going to start following this guy, and I'm going to watch him. I'm going to see how he lives. I'm going to listen to his teachings, but I'm also going to see how he lives it out. And then I'm going to try to imitate that. I'm going to try to make his character and his teachings part of the overflow of my life. This is what the disciples would have understood. And what I want you to understand is that this kind of relationship is what Jesus expects of every Christian. They're not Christians and then disciples and then vocational ministers. They're not levels of Christianity. Every Christian is called to be a disciple of Christ. Church leaders are called to lead as examples of that lifestyle of following Jesus and discipleship. We're the first followers, but we're all just followers of Jesus. Jesus expects every Christian to come into this kind of relationship with him where we're consciously trying to imitate his character and his teachings. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, which I think you should all read, uh, he says, for a while, Jesus seemed okay with the large crowds. He was fine with people coming out to be inspired by his teaching. But the time comes when he wants to talk about the relationship. I love in his book, he uses these, these kind of settings with Jesus. He calls them DTR relationships. Jesus needs to have a DTR talk with, with the followers. We need to define the relationship. He draws a line in the sand and wants to know where these people stand. Ultimately, what concerned Jesus wasn't the size of the crowd. It was the level of commitment. What concerns Jesus is not the size of the crowd. It's the level of commitment. 
There is some, for God, for some reason, gets great glory from using small numbers and small numbers of weak people. This movement that turned the world upside down in the first century started with a handful of misfits and people you would not have expected to be called by God himself to reach the world. Secondly, radical discipleship demands an uncompromising commitment to Jesus. Demands an uncompromising commitment to Jesus. Verses 26 and 27, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So he demands a radical commitment, even over your most significant relationships. Secondly, in verse 27, it says, Whoever does not bear his own cross which in that context was a symbol of death. It meant to bear your own cross. It meant to walk to death. There's nothing else that it could mean. And come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So you have to be committed to Jesus beyond your own personal safety. This word hate causes a lot of people to stumble. It causes a lot of preachers to, and this is where I'm really concerned not to water this down because this word hate causes a lot of preachers to try to make this text mean something other than what it says. And I think that it is true that this is hyperbole. It's hate is an exaggeration, but we also need to hear it with the force that Jesus says it. But it is, it is hyperbole in the same way in Romans chapter 9, uh, when the Apostle Paul is talking about God's uh, saving purposes in history. He says, for example, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I don't think that God literally hated Esau, but what it means is this, is that God loved Jacob in such a significant, special way. If you remember the biblical story, he chose Jacob to be the one who would carry on the line of promise. He chose Jacob to be the one whose line would never end all the way down until the arrival of Jesus Christ, who would be the redeemer of the whole world. So he chose Jacob and his posterity to be the the keeper of the covenants the keeper of the divine promises and along with that he god blessed his socks off kept him uh, protected him enriched him everywhere that he went if you read the the genesis narrative esau doesn't turn out that bad financially he actually when he shows up when he and jacob are reunited he has quite a bit of stuff you wouldn't look at him and think oh that guy was not loved or not blessed but the Bible's point, the biblical author's point, is that the way that God loved Jacob was so special and so significant that the way that he loved Esau it might as well have been hatred. It might as well have, it, because it was the, his blessing was so insignificant compared to the way that God blessed Jacob. Well, that's the same thing. That's Jesus' point. If anyone comes and does not hate his own father, so he doesn't mean literal hate, but he does mean that the kind of commitment, the kind of love that he expects from his followers is so significant. It is so special. It is so unlike the love that you have for your mother and your father and your children that you might as well hate them and even your own life. A lot of times we think about, when we start talking about loving Jesus versus loving other things, we tend to think of it, I think, in these kinds of categories, where Jesus, I need to love him the most. 
And then I love my spouse a lot too. And then I love my kids. Yeah, not as much as my wife, but I love my kids. And some, some families, I know we could reverse those. And then as long as I've got my priorities ordered, now I can start adding on some other things to love. Now I can love myself some. Treat yourself. You can love tacos. You can love video games. As long as you've got your priorities right, love what you want. Who cares? But this is not, I think this is a poor model for understanding what Jesus is talking about. And this, this is the model that you gets implied a lot in pastors' conferences and men's retreat. We love to beat up pastors and, and men when they come to a conference and we say, Oh yeah, I know a lot of you guys, you're putting your ministry before your spouse. You love Jesus, but you love your ministry too much. Your ministry, you love your ministry more than your wife and your kids. Man, it's all out of order. Don't you know you gotta love Jesus, then your spouse, then your kids, then your work. And we're, 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 we become preoccupied with figuring out a hierarchy of love in my life. And I don't think this is what Jesus meant. And I think this because I think when Jesus said that you need to love him more than your family, more than your most significant relationships, he meant it the same way that God meant it when he said, you shall have no other gods before me. So when God said, you shall have no other gods before me, he did not mean have the most love for me. And then you can have some love for Ra, the God of Egypt, the sun God. And then you could have some love for Baal, who is the Canaanite God. And then you could love Dagon, the Philistine God. So that Exodus 20 verse 3 didn't mean that, did it? And you, you guys know that intuitively. When God said you shall have no other gods before me, he didn't mean that you could have some gods after me. He meant I'm the only one. I'm in a category by myself. And you don't put anybody in that category with me. And then he called the Israelites when he gave them the law. He told them to order their whole life around him at the center. And God himself told the Israelites who they could marry and who they could not marry. And he told them uh, what their marriage should look like, how they should treat their wives. He told them how they should treat their kids. He told them what the goal and purpose of raising children is. He told them what their work should look like. He told them what kind of work they could do, when they could work, when they should take days off, when they should take holidays. He was very specific. And all of their life was lived in reference to God at the center of it all. So what I'm arguing is that when Jesus says that you can't come to him, you can't be his disciple unless you hate your significant relationships, he's saying this. He's saying, you need to put me in a category that is set apart. And there need to be no competitors in that category so that when Jesus tells us to do something, what other people feel about it is not part of the conversation. But we have to be obedient to Christ. Now, how we apply it, how we walk it out, there can be some nuance there, but but we've got to be obedient to Jesus. I don't have to please my wife more than Jesus I don't have to please myself more than Jesus. I, I don't even got to breathe. Breathing is optional. Living another moment is optional. But obeying Jesus is a must. It's what I've got to do. That's, this is what he's calling us to. A radical commitment that puts him at the center in a category by himself. And then my marriage, my kids, my work, my ministry, all these things get fleshed out in relation to what he has said. We let him inform and direct how we live our lives. Does that make sense? Then we can add in some other things. How we, our time, our money, 
and you can the list goes on and on. Everything that is our life has to be considered in reference to Jesus who stands in a category by himself as our Lord. Dr. Ramesh Richard, I love this quote. He says, I've heard him say this many times. He says, you can have many passions in life, but you can only have one passion of life. Means you can love a lot of things. You can be have a lot of hobbies. You can have a lot of interests. You can have a lot of things that you love, but there can only be one thing at the center of your life that organizes and directs your life. That's why Jesus said no one can serve two masters. In that case, he was talking about money, but you could take out money and put in anything. You cannot serve God wholeheartedly and serve anything else. And so Jesus said, you call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. In John thirteen thirteen, You know what, that, that word Lord in the first century, it could be used to mean sir, but it had a very special context. When Christians used it, when they said Jesus is Lord, which is a confession that put their life in jeopardy, the reason it was such a major statement for them to make is because Lord was the title that Caesar took to himself, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he said, Caesar is Lord. And he expected every Roman citizen to bow the knee to him and to offer worship. This was the confession of the Roman Empire. And so Christians, when they started following Jesus, their confession became Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is why in in the first century, Christians were persecuted because they were seen as unpatriotic. They were seen, they were called atheists, if you can believe that. Even though they were worshiping God, they were called atheists because they refused to worship the Roman gods and specifically the emperor as a god. They refused to bow their knee and recognize him. Their declaration was that Caesar is not Lord and Caesar will ultimately answer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Radical commitment, willingness to stand against and speak truth to the face of power and say you have no power over the Lord Jesus. John thirteen thirteen, Jesus says... You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because I am. I do have authority. And then Luke six forty six, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John Stott says this in his book, The Radical Disciple. He says, Basic to all discipleship is our resolve not only to address Jesus with polite titles, but to follow his teaching and obey his commands. Basic to all discipleship. This book, the last book that John Stott wrote before his death, and it, the subtitle is Some Neglected Aspects of Our Calling. And it's, it's a little embarrassing to read because he puts, he includes one of his chapters is on Christ likeness. It embarrasses me that Christ likeness is a neglected aspect of the Christian calling because that's basically all it is. That, that is it. We're neglecting the very, the most basic elements of what we're called to do and who we're called to be. Third, radical discipleship requires a thoughtful, calculated commitment. Verse 28 says, First of you, for, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Okay, so whatever kind of consideration that Jesus is encouraging us to do, it is the kind of consideration that is going to take enough time. That, is there anything in my life that I can't live without. I can't follow Jesus because I can't live without this thing. I talk to people who are, say they're, they're living together. They're not married. This is a, a conversation that, that it's okay to ask them, you know, if you give your life to Christ, would you be willing 
to walk away from this relationship? Do you feel like being in this relationship, being in this situation is more valuable to you than what Christ is offering to you? To, to frame it that way, to ask them seriously to count the cost because, because we can't fudge and act like the Bible says that that's okay for people to live together without being in a covenant relationship. If people are, are being sexually immoral outside of marriage, that we can't fudge those lines and tell people that Jesus is going to be okay with that. I think that's, that's the impression that we give a lot of times is that, oh yeah, you just come to Jesus and then we'll figure out your living situation. But it's okay to say you can't be a disciple and live in, in immorality because Jesus calls us out of that. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me and say, if you will quit doing this, then you can become a Christian because that's not what's being said. We're not, we're not saying that the condition of you becoming a Christian is cleaning yourself up and becoming sinless. Nobody is saying that. What we are saying is that is, does this, is there a relationship that has such a hold on your heart that you can't do that. And you know, you don't, I mean, I say you can present it that way. Most people will what we call self-select. They will know that that's not, if you are talking about the Bible's view of sexual ethics, they will get the picture that what they're doing is not consistent. So usually people will, it's funny, unbelievers oftentimes have a higher sensitivity to hypocrisy than the church does. We basically invite people to come in to a situation of hypocrisy where most unbelievers will say, uh, I don't want to be fake. You know, I mean, this is where I am. And we need to respect that. We need to say, you know, Jesus is worth it. Whatever you have to give up to embrace Christ is worth it. And so I don't want to, don't want to bait and switch. I don't want to fudge on, on Jesus's standards. I just want to invite them to embrace Jesus as being worth it whatever it is that they need to give up. And everybody needs to give up something. That, that's, we can't, we can't, we don't want to cherry pick sin and act like, oh, well, people who are cohabitating, we can't let them, whatever, but we don't want to offer it to them, but we'll offer it to proud people or, or people who are cheating on their taxes or, or whatever. Everybody has something they need to give up. Coming to Jesus means confessing that I'm a sinner. And everybody has something in their life that needs to be given up. So all we're doing in counting the cost is asking people to evaluate what are the things that you're going to have to turn away from? What does it mean to turn to Christ in repentance and faith? Because it means something for everybody. And I'm afraid what we've done in the American church is we've made it, we've turned it into a meaningless proposition. Coming to Christ means nothing in terms of repentance. It only means believing a certain set of facts about who Jesus is. And the Bible never presents that as true conversion. Bob Roberts, uh, pastor of Northwood Church, writes, Part of our challenge in communicating the gospel will be allowing people to process. We must instill the truth that evangelism is not just an event where someone prays the sinner's prayer. It's a process of awakening and understanding that only comes through the Holy Spirit. When that process is short-circuited, rushed, or streamlined for the sake of church industry and production, we often get the stat but lose the soul. So we end up with churches full of unconverted Christians. Number four, because i got to finish. Radical discipleship results in kingdom impact. This kind of discipleship, this kind of essential, uh, this kind of commitment is what I'm calling this essential quality of Christian discipleship. And without it, we can make no impact. Jesus says salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Man, that's worthless. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Just as saltiness is the essential characteristic of salt, so complete, uncompromised commitment to Jesus is the essential characteristic of true disciples. And without it, they are useless. Lots of people have observed that the church in the West seems to lack power, right? And you you talk to different church growth experts and you get all kinds of different uh, answers to the problem. Some people say, oh, well, you need more prayer. You don't have enough prayer in your church. Some people say, oh, you need more Holy Spirit in your church, right? You don't have enough Holy Spirit power. I believe that the lack of Holy Spirit power and the la- and prayerlessness are not root causes. They are symptomatic of this root cause. All of our, as a matter of fact, all of our family values here at City Church, they really all flow out of this one value, this radical heart-level commitment to Jesus Christ. Y'all, disciples, pray. Disciples are faithful prayers. Disciples engage in loving community. All, all of our values, I was looking at them this morning, they really flow out of this, this essential quality of seeking to imitate the life of Christ, seeking to be like him. And so that's a strong way to say it, to say that they are useless. But I think that this, this is really the key explanation for why the church in the West lacks power. If we want more power, we've got to seek to imitate the life of Christ to depend on the Holy Spirit the way that Jesus depended on the Holy Spirit, to pray and seek the Father's face the way that Jesus did, to cling to the Word of God the way that Jesus did, the way that he used the Word of God to fight off sin when he was tempted by the devil. And this is not the only passage that that suggests that our usefulness for the kingdom is we have some, our actions, our commitment level can determine how much impact we have in the kingdom Second uh, Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse twenty, it says, "Now in a large house, like the church is a pretty large house, God's church, the big C church, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work." Second Chronicles 16.9 is one of my favorites. It says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So what I'm not saying, if you're here and you feel like you've not been walking in this path of discipleship and you, you don't feel that you've been that useful to God, I am not trying to beat you down. The main thing that I want you to hear from me on this point is that God loves to use people who want to be used by him. He loves to use people who desire to be faithful to him, who desire to please him. And you, your own, that volitional commitment of your heart, that decision to pursue Christ, however imperfectly it may be, none of us are perfect in it. I'm sure not. But no matter how imperfect it may be, that heart to commit ourselves to follow Jesus and to be like him He is going to bless that, and he's going to honor that, and he is going to use you. I promise you he will. But it does require something of you to move toward him in that. So radical discipleship, quick summary, assumes a distinction between fans and followers, demands an uncompromising commitment to Jesus, 
requires a thoughtful, calculated commitment and results in kingdom impact. And so by way of application, I want to ask you some questions. Are you ready to move from the crowd to being a disciple? A couple of scenarios here. Maybe you have never really encountered Christ. Maybe you've prayed prayers throughout your life, but you've never counted the cost. You've prayed the prayer, but you've never seen any real change in your heart. You've never felt the Holy Spirit compelling you toward life change and toward discipleship. I think that could be true for some people. And so maybe you need to move off the bleachers. Maybe you're a fan of Jesus. You really think Jesus is awesome and you really like the church and people here have been really nice to you, but it's time for you to move out off the bleachers and to get onto the field as a follower of Jesus. Now, there may be some of you who you've responded to the gospel, but the gospel that you heard was kind of an easy believism gospel and it, they know, nobody ever taught you to count the cost. You feel like you genuinely have a relationship with Christ, but you need to take that next step to commit yourself to follow Jesus in discipleship, to seek to be like him, to imitate him in his character and his teaching. Secondly, are you ready to make Jesus the central priority of your life? There's some of you that what I'm saying today may not be news. It's something that you've already known, but if you're honest in your heart of hearts, there's something else on the throne of your heart. Or... Uh, maybe Kyle Eidelman in his book, he said, some of you don't have a throne on your heart. You've got a couch and you gave Jesus a cushion and you've got somebody else has got another cushion and somebody else has got another cushion. Your heart needs to be a one seater and Jesus alone has the right to it. Third, have you counted the cost of following Jesus and decided that he is worth it? For many of us, this could just be rededication, being reminded that Jesus is worth it. In the busyness of life, we've, we've got jobs, we go and work in places, and we hang out in places where Jesus is not respected. And we've trained ourselves to be quiet about Jesus because we know that nobody else values him the way that we do. The way that we value him will determine the way that we talk about him, the way that we share about him. And, and part of saying, hating, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but part of hating your coworkers. <laughs> May mean, may mean recognizing the worth of Jesus. And it's funny that if you, this, this is another paradox. The more that you quote unquote hate your coworkers, the more you will actually love them the way that Jesus has called you to. The more that, you, the less that you care about their opinion about you and their opinion about Jesus, and the more that you realize the worth of Jesus and the fact that they need to hear about him. And the most loving thing that you can do is to tell them about the one who died for them. When you really believe that, then you can die to your preoccupation with what they think about you and just share. Sorry, that's all I got. (laughs) And fourth, do you want God to use you? I think this is... Lack of intentionality is is one of the most pervasive things that I see in in this generation of the church. And I don't know where it's come from exactly, but there has almost like a lot of young people I talk to, they seem to have this idea that, yeah, just, well, almost that what I showed you before, the the ranking, the hierarchical ranking, you know, as long as I love Jesus, then I can kind of just go through life doing my thing. And somehow God's just going to use me, man. I don't know how. 
And it is, God will, use, God will use us in surprising ways. I, I do not deny that. And if we're seeking him and we're walking with him, God can do some amazing, incredible things. But the people in this world who have made the most impact, who have been most useful to God, have been people who have been zealous to be used by God. You know, that's what it means when Paul writes that you are supposed to be zealous for good works. It means you're supposed to desire for God to do good works through you. He prepared them from long ago that we would walk in them, Scripture says. But we have to have a desire to walk in them, to actually do them, and to let God use us. I just want to invite you, if any of this resonates with you, if you're in a place where you you want to get on the playing field, you want to walk with Jesus, you want to get serious about being conformed to his image, I invite you to come down for prayer, come up here for prayer, raise your hand, we can come to you and pray for you. I don't want us to be watered down. We, The church needs power. This church needs power. I'm thankful for God's love for us and Jesus' presence with us, and I'm thankful for how faithful God has been to us. But I want this church to be used by God in a mighty way, and I think we're, we're going to be a more prayerful people. We're going to be a more biblically faithful people as we seek Christ in discipleship. But it does require a commitment of your heart. And so if that's a commitment you want to make this morning, I want to invite you to raise your hands. Come down to the front.